This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, all right, Pastor Bross, we're back in the studio continuing our summer series. Been a busy summer so far for both of us, wouldn't you say? I would say, and it's been, uh, we regret very much that uh, I think the plan was when we started off that we'd be done with the uh, articles of the uh, formula of Concord, but uh, we're on number three today, and we apologize for that. Well, you know, our people are very patient, you know, in uh, dealing with us. They realize that This is a luxury for us, even though they get to sit at home, you know, in their mother's basement eating a bag of Cheetos, uh, listening to the Pluck Chicken podcast all day long, you know? (laughs) Yes, okay. So we have spent uh, thus far really looking at what the epitome lays out as being the bad news. It's the article on original sin and the article on free will. Now, gratefully, today we're going to get to some good news in Article 3. But just to summarize what we've covered thus far, and these are all words uh, taken from the epitome itself, when it comes to original sin, original sin is a hereditary evil. It is the lost image of God in mankind and an unspeakable corruption of the soul's highest chief powers in the understanding, heart, and will. It is the source of all actual sins, such as wicked thoughts, words, and works, and it can only be covered and forgiven before God and those baptized and believing. And then the really, really good news in the blessed resurrection, original sin will be entirely destroyed. Well, then when it comes to free will, the unregenerate will of mankind is not only turned away from God, but is God's enemy. As a result, in spiritual matters, the understanding and reason of mankind are completely blind and by their own powers understand nothing. He is the devil's captive, and as a result, his will is very strong, alive, and active in everything that is displeasing and contrary to God. Only the Holy Spirit causes a person to be born anew and to have inwardly another heart, mind, and natural desires. This God does through the preaching office when a person has been converted. His will is renewed, wanting to do what is good. Nevertheless, the combat and struggle of the flesh against the Spirit remains even in the elect and truly regenerate people. So this, again, is just laying the groundwork for the bad news. I mean, you got to know how bad the bad news is before you can really appreciate the good news, wouldn't you say? I would absolutely say so. And so with this article, we're moving on to the third article, the righteousness of faith before God. And that is the good news. What's interesting about this one is, uh, you know, if as you talk about that notion, the righteousness of faith before God, very quickly, and, and actually this article exposes it, you realize that even this one needs clarity. You can't be unclear about what you mean. And, and people can fill the ca- these categories with lots of different false ideas. And, and that's exactly what Article 3 addresses, a, a number of false ideas. And um, as you sort of do a little bit of archaeology on this one, you find out that the presenting issue uh, came from a... Um, a theologian by the name of uh, Oziander. And Oziander uh, had said that our justification before God, our righteousness before God, consisted of this, that somehow or other, Christ, according to his divine nature, dwells inside of the believer's heart, 
And God looks at that indwelling of Christ in the believer's heart and calls that the believer's righteousness. Now, I imagine, frankly, that this fundamental error uh, identified here in the Lutheran confessions, that this fundamental error is alive and well in much of American Christianity. I remember one conversation that I, I got into, uh, and I, I've told you this a million times. I won't repeat the context for everybody, but somebody said, um, what if a little four-year-old asked me as a pastor, how do I know that I'm saved, pastor? How would I as a pastor answer? And my answer that I gave to this person who worked in a preschool was, child, uh, your mom and dad had you baptized. Christ was placed upon you and Jesus died for your sins. And she said, no, 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 you can't talk like that. You have to say, Jesus lives inside your heart. Now, I think this is, this little anecdote lays the groundwork for understanding the, the major difference between the beautiful teaching of evangelical Lutheranism on the one hand and the, the really scary error of American Christianity on the other. To tell a child to look inside of his heart and find Jesus there is the beginning of despair because as you well know and as I well know, I mean, I've already committed more sins than I can shake a stick at this morning and it's what, 10 o'clock? Man, you know, if I have to find that kind of righteousness in myself, I'm just not going to find it. But you clearly don't know the song, Pastor Bruss. What is the song? I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. <laughs> where? Down in my heart. <laughs> right, okay. That's where you're supposed to be looking. Right, and this is what Oziander was teaching. So I, I really love this one. As, as a, um, I mean, every one of these so far has been extremely applicable to our modern context these errors have just come up again and again and again let me ask you if this error is in the same vein i, I just heard it the other day i was listening to a guy and uh, he was talking about you know watching certain movies i think it was a horror movie or something and he said man i was just i was watching that right as i was getting up to turn it off i was just pleading the blood of jesus Pleading the blood of Jesus. What did he mean by that? Well, he, he's trying I, to... I, like, mean, I plead the blood of Jesus all the time, right? Lord, save me from my sins. Well, sure, but you also receive the blood of Jesus. There's, right. a, there's something concrete about it. There's a delivery mechanism that you actually can taste it and smell it and, and, and actually you know feel it going into your mouth, whereas... This um, pleading the blood, it's, this, uh, it's, it's out there in the ether, and somehow we're hoping that it actually gets applied to us in some fashion or some way. Right. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's very, uh, you're saying it's very ethereal. Yes. The one thing uh, about that that is appreciable, I think, is that whoever made this statement is actually recognizing that the blood of Christ is outside of himself. Right. Rather than than in uh, he didn't say I looked inside myself and said, self, let can we get out of this situation or True whatever that. the case was. True so that. Yeah. But a Lutheran, when the Lutheran pleads the blood of Christ, uh, he realizes that the promise is fulfilled both in his baptism and in the sacrament of the altar and in the preaching of the gospel. Right. That is the application of the blood of Christ to you. So a Lutheran can say, 
you know, it's just holding God to his promises, basically, right? Which is what all prayer is. It's not fanciful kind of stuff. And that's the same thing with Jesus in me, uh, right? It's it's very, eth- I, I don't know, it's ethereal, I guess. It's just sort of it psychic, or psychic or something. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. mystic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the opportunity to, to speak with a, um, you know, I'm sure he was born Lutheran and raised Lutheran. And now he is a dyed-in-the-wool uh, Bible-thumping Baptist. He begins by saying, you know, all that doctrine stuff, you know, it's just, you know, it's just believe Jesus in your heart. There, mm-hmm. There's no... Well, then for the next 20 minutes, he regales me with doctrine. Mm-hmm. With false doctrine. <laughs> or, or, yeah, right. You know, is that what you're saying? Yeah. False doctrine, yeah. And yep. it's like there's two sets of glasses that Christians are wearing. There's one set of Christians... They are wearing these glasses that cannot see God as utilizing physical things. Water, bread, wine. Right. Lips. Can't do it. Mm-hmm. It is supposed to be spiritual. It, it is a spiritualization of anything physical. Mm-hmm. However, they can proof text this. You know, they've got Bible verses that... The that, spirit, not the letter, all this sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You say in your heart that you believe or, you know, confess Jesus with your mouth mm-hmm. and you're saved. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got Bible verses that neuter the physical mm-hmm. elements. Mm-hmm. But when you take the Bible as a whole and begin to see it from Genesis to Revelation, you see the repetition of God using physical things to actually deliver spiritual benefits. This is a foreign concept. Or if they think about it at all, they'll say, oh, that's too Catholic. Mm -hmm. And then just dismiss it outright. Mm -hmm. So you got that group, and then you've got the other group that reads the scriptures and says, here I see God connecting his promises with the water of baptism. Here I see God connecting his promises with the body and blood of his son in, with, and under the bread and wine in the sacrament of the altar. Here I see God connecting his promises with pastors laying their hands on penitent sinners and saying, I forgive you all of your sins. Here I see God connecting his promises with preachers sent out to proclaim his word. Right. But for some reason, they can't see God connecting his promises to fruit in a garden. They can't see God connecting promises to a rainbow placed in the sky. They can't see God connecting his promises based upon circumcision. They, they can't see those things. They know that's there in the Bible. But it's like they but cannot these make that or something like jump. That. Yeah, yep. Does it go to this um, where we take the, the scriptures and to put them in a child's Bible, we, we make them cartoon-like? Like they were never real, like like it was fiction. That's interesting. And, and, you, and we you, painted you're, always, all? you're always going for the deeper meaning. Right. In other words, yeah. So we've got this fun little story, Noah's Ark. That's kitty stuff. The deeper meaning is whatever I invest, whatever meaning I invest in the in the narrative, right? And Luther, you know, a Lutheran simply says. Uh, that you cannot divorce the spiritual meaning of the text from the literal meaning. Right. And this was a thing that, uh, you know, that I realized early on. Here being just like, you know, any other Bible-thumping, Bible-believing, pew-jumping Baptist, I thought the Lutherans believe the Bible even more than I do. And I thought I, I believed every word of it. So, uh, and you did... 
you did. But uh, I was but wearing a, a filter. Com- it, right. Yes, I was yep. wearing a completely different set of yeah. glasses. Yeah, that's really. Uh, I mean, that's really interesting. I think that the reason that so many people f- fall into that uh, today is that they're just bombarded with it. Um, even our people, you know, if they, God save them, they listen to these stupid Christian radio stations, right? Um, That's and catechizing them. It is catechizing them, and, and it's constantly teaching them, uh, just like it constantly teaches the Methodists or the the big, you know, box Bible church people uh, to spiritualize. And it t- draws them away from what I like to call the realia, the real things that God that God uses and that he's ordained um, to... Um, to save them, actually. And making us what? Like a bunch of Native Americans wandering the plain and praying to the great white owl and the white buffalo? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah. which, which, are, which are really, I mean, it's super interesting. That is very spiritual in the same exact way that American evangelicalism is spiritual. They don't believe that there is a physical great, you know, great big owl or whatever the case might be. It's a spiritual great white owl. And it's, so it's divorced from, from reality. It has certain intersections with reality, but it's really divorced from reality. And not to whip up on the American evangelicals, but in, you know, the, the generation that I grew up in, since you don't have that physical element with promises attached to it you've got to spend your time teaching and focusing on something else and so the big things that you spend your time on is evangelism and the other thing that you spend your time on is how the world came into being and how it's all going to to end to end yeah and you miss the miss the heart and center of the faith totally yeah well um Speaking of missing the heart and center of the faith, right, the righteousness before God uh, that we have through faith in Jesus Christ is called by Lutherans the Articulus Stantis et Cadentis Ecclesiae, the article on which the church stands or falls. Get it right, and the church must survive because God promises through this message to bring not just butts and pews, mm-hmm. but to bring people to heaven okay and, so are but, you saying then like today's american evangelical would say that your biggest thing is not to go to heaven your biggest thing is to find your purpose then they have missed the boat oh then they then then they have the articulus cadentis ecclesiae the article of the church's falling you know you can have institutions large institutions uh large institutions that claim the name christian uh, that are not. And Christ himself says as uh, about these people who call out, Lord, Lord, right? Uh, I do not even know you. Uh, so getting this article right is just absolutely critical. So we had earlier said that Osiander, uh, this theologian, had said that his theory about how this all worked out, right? So, I mean, you got to think this through in his perspective and sort of give him uh, at least the charity to listen to his argument. Uh, is that God demands righteousness. He cannot bear what is unrighteous because he is holy. And so when he he doesn't operate by a fiction because God doesn't make stuff up, right? This is what Osiander is saying. And so since he is holy and cannot bear what is unrighteous, since he does not operate by fiction, 
Therefore, the transaction that occurs that allows the erstwhile sinner to stand before God on the judgment day and be drawn to God by God into heaven must have occurred inside of the of the sinner and the sinner must have become righteous somehow or other and what he does is he credits this to the indwelling of the divinity of the divine inside of the penitent sinner okay so that's his theory so far then along comes another guy who says no 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 all of the righteousness of Christ was achieved in human flesh and that's his name is Stancaro he was this uh, Italian guy at the University of Königsberg so this is what is feeding into this article okay now there are three fundamental issues uh, that the Lutheran confessions identify and this is the archaeology I'm talking about the first one is that they recognize in both the position of Andreas Osiander and in the position of Francesco Stancaro the fact that they have divided the person of Christ once the divinity is united with the humanity in the womb of the Blessed Virgin at the conception of Jesus Christ there is no like God person anymore and no human person anymore they are one person forever joined indivisible indivisible that's just the way it is so who pleads for you at the throne of God is it God the Son or is it Jesus according to his humanity and the answer is yes both do okay so that's that's point number one so this division of the person in um, of Christ and this is why the pastor many times will hold up his hand and hold the two fingers right to, right. to demonstrate that this is these two natures are are one absolutely and then he then he holds his uh, what a the fifth and fourth finger together with a thumb to talk about the the Trinity mm -hmm. yeah um, point number two is this that the Ozi doesn't matter whether you're Stancaro or Oziander uh, what you're doing is you're placing you're, you're locating the act of justification inside the human being and it can't happen there uh, it can't happen there because the scriptures say it happens elsewhere it actually happens in the life death resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ it is entirely extra nos that transaction the third thing that's so interesting is that the Oziandrian position as well as the Stancaro position fails to deal with the fact that we continue to live in the flesh as simul justi et peccatores both at one and the same time righteous on the one hand and sinners on the other and that will persist as you had just pointed out beautifully right that's going to persist until uh, the Lord uh, raises us up uncorruptible on the last day. And this is all Romans 7. Absolutely. Yes, right. I mean, it's not like, like anyone's making it up or sort of trying to coddle and excuse our sins because we know we're all sinners still. Uh, it's, it's what the scriptures themselves teach. And so these are the, the, the basic issues. And the one that I think is, um, I mean, you, you can start on, I mean, we can just start, begin with every one of these and and just sort of see how they're played out in American you know folk piety right um, Jesus 
only according to one nature. Now, I suppose that people theorize about this stuff, right? But what is my righteousness before God? It is Christ. What does St. Paul say? Is it uh, in um, 1 Corinthians 1? Jesus Christ is our our righteousness and our uh, sanctification, wisdom before God, all of this sort of stuff. That's not that's not the divinity of Jesus. It's not the humanity of Jesus. It's the one person of Christ. Probably the second is the more critical for our purposes. Um, this is where the transaction takes place. Wouldn't you say? And you, I mean, you've just talked about this a ton that in the minds of most American evangelicals, and therefore in the minds of most Americans who are Christian, the entire righteousness of God consists of something happening inside of me. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, the services are designed to manipulate one into making a decision, and these are very powerful and very effective many times. In this manipulation where one is unwittingly led to close the deal or to buy the timeshare or what have you, where one is feeling it in one's heart. There's a dozen things that are going on in most evangelical services, whether it be from a dramatic testimony that one hears to whether the lights are down and the uh, music is playing softly and the preacher is, you know, saying that, look, you need to decide right now. To not decide is to decide. I mean, all these these little cliches. And so one does begin to feel, and it can be very emotional, Mm -hmm. I mean, in a beautiful way. And so this is where one begins to know that they have the righteousness uh, that you're speaking of. But again, it's the loci, if you will, is is the heart. That That right. is the throne room. Yep, and that's that's the front-loaded side, right? I mean, that, that's the preparation work, right? Right, right. but you know, in the, uh, in the rites uh, that the Lutheran have, not only is there something taking place via God, but say in, the, in a baptism, now I realize this is not the, uh, the practice that St. John's has, but it's the uh, the giving of the at least to the to the infant the the napkin mm-hmm. you know to represent see mm-hmm. see we have things that represent mm-hmm. but it's to to represent uh, that little white napkin uh, that little white towel or cloth or whatever it happens to be uh, represents Christ's righteousness and you carry but that it all- is not Christ's righteousness no of course right, not yeah, right but then you carry that all the way to their death and we. Uh, you know, we cover the casket, not the urn. We cover the casket in a in a white pall. I mean, these are pall bearers who carry the casket, and this represents that this person was uh, clothed in Christ's righteousness. But here's where the evangelical doesn't get it. Again, going back to what was said earlier, God does not attach promises to anything physical. They don't realize that Christ's righteousness does not come to them via a decision one makes in their heart or their mind. It comes to them through the water that is actually poured upon their head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right. It's, it's entirely outside of them. The transaction occurs outside and is brought to bear upon them. Yeah. So you've got, the, you've got that sort of um, um, conversion speech, right? Uh, but then you've also talked extensively about the 
the kind of emphasis in evangelical preaching on Christian life. Would you say external righteousness? Sure, external righteousness, Mm -hmm. what we would call external righteousness. Mm -hmm. Really what that is all about is the other part of of this whole Oseandrian problem, that the righteousness of Christ is reified or made real for me through my own actions, my sanctification. That's awful. But isn't isn't that the teaching that they that that's implicit in the heavy duty emphasis on good works among evangelicals? Sure, but wouldn't that be uh, the putting the the cart before the horse? Say what you mean. You're trying to get a bad tree to produce good fruit. Right. Lost people do good works all the time, but they're not seen as good works in God's eyes. In man's eyes, they're seen as good works, or they can be. Mm-hmm. But before God, they're menstrual rags. Because they're not done in faith. Right. 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 So here's the thing. Let me just read this par- these couple of paragraphs, and I think this will help us uh, understand where the popular imagination gets this wrong. I'm going to go to the formula of Concord, the Solid Declaration, Pastor Kearns, Article 3, beginning with paragraph 25 or section 25, actually 24. And this really helps us to understand where Oseandrianism leads and the, the kind of desperate situation that the American evangelical finds himself in. So it begins this. If the article of justification is to remain pure, the greatest attention must be given with special diligence. Now, the article of justification is the Articulus Stantis et Cadentis Ecclesiae. If you get it right... The church stands. If you get it wrong, the church falls. Otherwise, what comes before faith and what follows after it will be mixed together or inserted into the article of justification as necessary and belonging to it. For it is not one and the same thing to talk about conversion and to talk about justification. That's really interesting. Not everything that belongs to conversion also belongs to the article of justification. Now, Conversion consists of two parts, right? One of them is rep- repentance, and one of them is is God pr- pronouncing his, his forgiveness of sins over the person who is repentant. Which of those two is justification? Only God pronouncing his justification. But the Holy Spirit is the one that's involved in both. He's involved in both, but, but here's the interesting thing. The repentant, right, the Holy Spirit works that repentance. But that repentance is not justifying faith because it does not cling to Christ. Because someone can be repentant. That doesn't mean that they're converted. They can be repentant unto death, right, Uh, which is that sort of desperate. Well, uh, Judas. Judas, great example. Yep. So I read on. Um, Not everything that belongs to conversion also belongs to the article of justification. Only God's grace, Christ's merit, and faith belong and are necessary to the article of justification. Faith receives these blessings in the promise of the gospel by which Christ's righteousness is credited to us. Now look at that. Christ's righteousness is credited to us. Where is it coming from? The outside, not the inside. The transaction happens on the outside. From this, we receive and have the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, sonship, and are made heirs of eternal life. So simply in, in the imputing of the righteousness of Jesus to the sinner, all of that stuff 
happens. You become a child of God, an heir of everlasting life. You're regarded as holy by by God who looks on you as his dear beloved son. This is just a huge thing. It's not in your repentance. It's in in the reception by faith, which itself is a gift of God, uh, that, uh, that God does this. Now, go on. True, saving faith is not in people who lack contrition and sorrow and who have a wicked plan to remain and continue in sins. But true contrition comes first and genuine faith is in or with true repentance. In other words, this isn't saying that just because the article of justification has to be kept pure doesn't mean that there isn't repentance that precedes it at all. It's, it's always part of it. But the repentance itself is not the thing that brings about the faith. Now, why is that? It's because repentance is a work of the law. It's worked by the law. It's worked under the law. We do it under the law. And we go on. Love is a fruit that surely and necessarily also follows true faith. So of necessity, if you have faith, you are going to love your neighbor and you're going to love God. The fact that a person does not love is a sure sign that he is not justified. He's still in death or has lost the righteousness of faith again, as John says in 1 John 3.14. But Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So let's put a pause button here. Repentance is a work of the law. Your works of love are works of the law. Those do not justify you. The only thing that justifies is faith in the Son of God who has the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And this really is the the work of theology. Theology is about making distinctions. People could listen to what we're doing and think, oh, you know, this is so... Yeah, just give me Jesus. Oh, yeah. yeah, just give me... Je- I just Well, like you were saying, right? It's just, just yeah. about Jesus. I don't yeah. want to hear about doctrine. Right, right. right. But we're, we really are parsing out different theological topics and and defining them here and it's critical for the christian if so just imagine if if you didn't have this right if you and i as preachers uh did not have this figured out properly the kind of way that that would warp the message that we're proclaiming and therefore where the people who are hearing us would anchor their hope So we're just talking about this. Where does the American evangelical anchor his hope? He anchors it in his own decision, and then he anchors it in the works of love that he does after his conversions, with scare quotes is what I'm putting up there, his works of love after his conversion. So where is he anchoring his hope then? He's anchoring it in the law, not in the gospel, not in what Jesus has done for him. And this is the entire point of this article on the righteousness of faith before God. And going back to one of our previous podcasts in this series, he's still in the silo looking for a way out. Right. He can't, he, there, there is, there is, there is no way. There's no door. No one's presented the door to him. There right. is a door. Yeah. Jesus Christ is the door. But Jesus has been turned into a new Moses or something like that. I remember when you, I've I've reminded you of what you said uh, several times. We were talking about another church, 
here in town and somebody was exclaiming about, you know, how many people go to this church? Have you seen the number of cars in this parking lot? And the person said, you'd think Jesus was there. And you, you said, no, Moses is. That's interesting. I forgot about that. But what a what a line. I mean, that is so true. They think Jesus is there. Moses is there giving more law because Jesus is not proclaimed as crucified. Right. When you proclaim Jesus Christ as crucified, what you're saying is he is the propitiation for your sins. There is nothing you can do to gain your salvation. And in fact, to the degree that you place your hope in what you do, you are placing yourself outside of the promise. So the promise, though, is that God takes unregenerate people and makes them regenerate. He takes unrighteous people and he makes them righteous. By proclamation. Yeah. So, and this is what Osiander was, was objecting to, right? He didn't like that. He, he thought that this was a fictional kind of thing. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, has become our righteousness. He has become the second Adam. And as this, as, just as all mankind fell in Adam's fall, because we were in his bag, excuse me, this is how the Hebrews thought about it, Christ, who is the second Adam, he reverses the sin of Adam. And, and just as Adam's sin was imputed to us and we inherited it, so also Christ's righteousness who is the second Adam, is imputed to us, and we inherited it through baptism. So it's not a fiction. It is a fiction in, in a world divorced of the scriptural record, I guess, but it's not a fiction. God's not pulling the wool over his own eyes. Yeah, and this is the beautiful thing about so many stories that are in the Old Testament, specifically the one that comes to mind the quickest is uh, David and Goliath. I mean, to think that as we've talked about before, you, you know, you hear the American evangelical not even preach Christ in that, just how God wants to help you fight against whatever giant that you have in your life. And the story is, is that, no, Jesus was in David's bag. Right. Right. You know, Jesus is the one defeating Goliath, just like he's the one who doesn't defeat whatever Goliath is in your life. Actually, he defeats the, the giant of sin, death, and the devil. On his holy cross. Right. right, right, in a way that nobody ever saw coming. Right, right. And since we're on this, let me just read on here. This is, again, uh, the formula. Article 3, uh, Solid Declaration, paragraph 56. Even well, back up, back up to well, 50, 54. 54 is great, right? I mean, why don't, you, why don't you read paragraph 54? All right. The dispute about God's essential righteousness dwelling in us must also be correctly explained. In the elect who are justified by Christ and reconciled with God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the eternal and essential righteousness, dwells by faith. For all Christians are temples of God, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who also moves them to do right. Yet this indwelling of God is not the righteousness of faith, St. Paul describes, and that he calls God's righteousness for the sake of which we are declared righteous before God. But it comes after the righteousness of faith, which is nothing else than the forgiveness of sins and the gracious adoption of the poor sinner for the sake of Christ's obedience and merit alone. This really gets right to the heart of the Oseandrian issue, doesn't it? And, and to the heart of the imagination of American evangelicalism. They want to focus, don't they, on the indwelling 
whereas the scriptural record places this entirely outside of us, extra nos. It's God's entire work applied to us. Yeah, there, there is no delivery mechanism for the evangelical except for the decision, which the epitome and the solid declaration have already made clear because of original sin, the free will cannot do this. Right. It's bound. It's, it's bound until God... Converts. Converts, right. He, he makes the will do a 180. Yep. So go ahead. and Sure. In our churches, it is acknowledged among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession that all our righteousness is to be sought outside the merits, works, virtues, and worthiness of ourselves and of all people. Our righteousness rests alone in Christ the Lord. Therefore, how Christ is called our righteousness in this matter of justification must be carefully considered. I mean that our righteousness rests not on one or the other nature in Christ, but on Christ's entire person, who, as God and man, is our righteousness in his only entire and complete obedience. Good. So I was thinking about how we were talking about these two natures, and You've, you've heard this before. You think about the—actually, uh, you referenced it just briefly in your sermon uh, yesterday, the Holy of Holies. It's a wood box covered in gold, and you'll see many commentators talk about how this pictures Christ uh, and his two natures, this, this nature of divinity and this nature of humanity— Maybe that's not the the best explanation, because you probably could, if you worked at it, try to divide these two. But uh, But then then it's not the ark. Totally. Right. Totally. You've totally destroyed it. Then you have a gold shell and a wood box, and that's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So these two are indivisible, so as to still remain the ark. Mm -hmm. I guess what I find so fascinating is that these things are gone. I mean, God has totally removed them, hasn't he? I mean, and they, Jesus is, yeah. yes. Whether yeah. it be the temple, whether it be the priesthood, whether it be uh, the ark, they're gone. And it's done that way on purpose. It's right. not, uh, well, we just lost it because uh, somebody uh, uh, stole it or, or hid it uh, or the government right, has the it. lost ark, yeah. exactly. It's, it's not an Area 53. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's gone for, for a reason because all of these things pointed to Christ, who is our righteousness. Who is our righteousness. Pause button here, okay? Let's just talk about where the American evangelical then places himself. Um, in locating his righteousness, either in his prevenient decision or in his subsequent good works. They'll say, yeah, it's all Jesus. It's even Jesus dwelling in me. But that's just the problem. The scriptures say this, Second Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Past time. Right? This is Paul writing in the year, whatever, 56 or something like that, to the Corinthians. It's a past event. That's where the transaction took place. And now it's applied to us through, through faith, through, um, by the means that God himself has instituted. So really an interesting thing. Paul never looks for the transaction to occur inside the human being. It's always the external preaching of the word uh, that itself creates the faith in the heart. Now, faith comes by hearing. How will they hear unless there's a preacher? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news? I mean, this is, this is what he's reiterating. To really 
communicate exactly what you're saying and that it comes to you outside of you instead of from within. And so let's, let's push the point a little further. Is not the American evangelical simply apart from a more elaborate kind of penitential system fallen into the very trap that Protestantism, scare quotes, tried to evade in the unscriptural teaching of the Roman Catholic Church? And the answer is absolutely yes. They don't talk about merits and other stuff like that, the American evangelicals. But folks, look, if you locate your surety of salvation in your decision for Jesus or in the good works that you do afterwards, you are not in Christ. I have decided to follow Jesus. I don't know this song. (laughs) I'm glad I don't. (laughs) I have decided. You you don't know this one? I've never heard it. (laughs) So is that a major? Oh, yeah. yeah. This is a no turning back. No turning back. I mean, this is... Very, this is as common of a song as uh, "By Grace I'm Saved," or I was going to say "Just as I Am." Oh, oh, sure, okay, yeah, okay. So, "By Grace I'm Saved" in the in the Lutheran Church, right? Yes, right. Or "Abide with Me" in the Lutheran Church. Sure, isn't that something else? Yeah, it it points to the real it, problem. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it reinforces the fact that your decision was made, and it was a valid decision, and you got to keep pressing on. Gotcha. Because of that decision. Yeah, what a sad thing. I mean, it, it just falls off the articulus stuntus et cadentis ecclesiae. Totally. Absolutely. So, so they point out here, you just finished this up, that it's Christ's entire person who as God and, God and man is our righteousness and is only entire and complete obedience, right? Okay, so that's what it says. Now, this is interesting as we go on. Even if Christ had been conceived and born without sin by the Holy Spirit, and had fulfilled all righteousness in his human nature alone, and yet had not been true and eternal God, this obedience and suffering of his human nature could not be credited to us for righteousness. Now, again, pause button. Why? Well, because Christ, in that sense, if he had not been God, would have simply been doing what every creature of God has been commanded to do from the start. And so he would have fulfilled his own righteousness, not the righteousness of you and of me. That's the point. Then it goes on. Also, if God's son had not become man, the divine nature alone could not be our righteousness. Well, why is that? It's very simple. The divine nature has always been there. The person of the pre-incarnate logos has existed from eternity. He was not our righteousness apart from his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection in our flesh through which that righteousness is imputed to us. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that the entire obedience of Christ's entire person, which he also offered to the Father for us, even to his most humiliating death on the cross, is credited to us for righteousness. For the human nature alone, without the divine, could not by obedience or suffering make satisfaction to eternal almighty God for the sins of the world. However, the divinity alone without the humanity could not mediate between God and us. We have no standing as mediators. So then, uh, these wonderful passages down below. 
For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. See also Romans 1, 17. So the beautiful teaching here is that your salvation is much simpler than the airwaves of American Christianity are making it out to be. Jesus has, has, past tense, perfect tense, has done it all. It's completed. Tetelestai, his last words on the cross. And so if we were to sum this up, we could say something to this effect. When it comes to the righteousness of faith before God, a poor sinful person is justified before God. That is, absolved and declared free and exempt from all his sin and from the sentence of well-deserved condemnation and is adopted into sonship and inheritance of eternal life without any merit or worth of his own. This happens without any preceding, present, or subsequent works out of pure grace because of the sole merit, complete obedience, bitter suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. His obedience is credited to us for righteousness. These blessings are brought to us in the gospel promise and are received, accepted, applied, and appropriated through faith alone. So this is the good news. This is the good news. And when it says through faith alone, mind you, this is, this is talking about that divinely worked faith in the heart of the, of the believer. Um, it's not uh, the believer working himself up to believe it. Then it becomes a work. Uh, God himself is the worker of this. This is wonderful good news. And this is the good news that you're going to hear in uh, Lutheran church. You're not going to hear this in the evangelical churches. You're not going to hear it in Catholic churches. Uh, and uh, evangelical listeners uh, hear this loud and clear. The same error of Rome is the error that is being perpetrated in your congregation. Most likely. So on the heels of the bad news, this is really good news. It's really good news. It's really good news. Yeah, we, we find out that we're just dead in our trespasses and sins and can't do anything. We can't even convert ourselves. All we can do is be crushed by the law. And when that law crushes us, then God comes with a sweet preaching of the gospel and gives us Jesus who has done it all on our behalf as God and man and just places it into the hand of faith, the faith that he himself has created and counts us righteous now does he expect us to lead a life of good works after that yeah he does but not to get to heaven no and actually those good works they come automatically they're spontaneous yes they have to be formed by the law there's no question about it but the new man that's created in in you christ in you wants to do them and seeks them there's this uh picture that i use when i'm teaching this exact same thing to uh, our catechumens, and it's this uh, raccoon on the side of a road. And this raccoon is, I mean, it's its beyond roadkill. You know, like it's puffed up, you know. I mean, this is necros, right? This is, if we had a stick and we poked him, you know, pus would come out. 
and somebody went along, and this is just classic. They went along and they tied one of those, um, what is it, mylar balloons? Sure. Uh, the, they tied one of these balloons uh, to the uh, raccoon's paw that's sticking up because of rigor mortis, and it says, get well soon. <laughs> yeah, right, which is the proclamation of the law. Right. right yeah. So, I mean, here's this, here's this raccoon that's dead in his sins and his trespasses, he cannot make a willful decision to uh, become re- alive, revive himself. Right. So this is the bad news. And the good news is, is that God does it for him apart from anything that he could possibly do on his own. Because he can't do anything. Can't do it. Can't do it. Yep. Well, this wraps up a really good session on some beautiful, solid teaching And we would just simply encourage people, Lutherans, tune in, uh, listen to what's going on from the pulpit, and become, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, I would say Uh, discerning, become discerning about what you're hearing. Yeah, and not just what you're hearing, but even as a Lutheran, I mean, pick up your book of Concord and become proficient in knowing these controversial articles that really... um, what do they do? They, they solidify your, your faith. Good, and hold your pastor to it, and then go into his library, and if he's got a lot of Billy Graham and Rick Warren, find another Missouri Synod church. What about Francis Chan? <laughs> yes, find another church. And evangelical listeners, make your way to a, uh, an evangelical Lutheran church and uh, find out just uh, how gracious God is in forgiving you all of your sins once and for all, in the blood and sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And attaching all of these promises to actual physical things. You can find them. Yep. yep. Amen. Yep. Amen. All right. So this all leads, this good news then leads to results. And this result is Article 4 on good works. And we'll take a look at that next time. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org. Okay, stop right there. I'm going to turn the air conditioner on. Yeah, it is a little warm in here. A lot of hot air going on. (laughs) 